Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. I want to invite you to take your Bible this morning and open to the book of Ezra. Ezra. Ezra is in the Old Testament right after the book of 2 Chronicles. And uh, put a place marker or something there and then also turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. We'll be there shortly, but we'll begin in Ezra. I want to begin a new series this morning that I've entitled Pursuing God. Hope and holiness. Hope and holiness. And this study will lead us through the record of Ezra. Ezra was one of three men that God used to lead his people back to Israel, back to Judah specifically, and even more specifically, the city of Jerusalem. And we'll talk about timelines and things like that as we go along. But I want us to think for a moment this morning about this idea of pursuing God. Pursuing God. And I want to ask you to set our minds as we begin today. When was the last time you went on a journey? When was the last time you went on a journey? It, it might have been a smaller journey. Playing in the snow this week might have been a, an adventure for your family, a journey. If you've got young kids, just getting everything on them to be able to take them out into this weather is an adventure in and of itself before you even get out of the house. And I saw one parent say, note to self, always let the children go to the restroom before you get them fully coated and take them outside. Otherwise, five minutes later... We've got to go to the bathroom, <laughs> right? When was the last time you went on a journey? And, and on that journey, what would you say most marked that journey for you? I shared one of my journeys back last fall from last summer of doing some hiking in the Colorado mountains. And I had been there before, but the specific area that we were going to, I had not been in some of those areas. And there are many aspects that I could share with you of that journey of just beholding the scenery of the fun moments that took place and the hard challenges and those kinds of things. But three aspects really stand out to me. And if I'm honest, it's probably these three aspects that really characterize any journey that becomes meaningful for me. The first aspect is just the place. Where is it? I love remote places. I love going maybe where some others have been, but where crowds are not. When people are headed into the city on Saturdays to shop, I like to head out to the woods and try to find a spot where it's not inhabited. So the place is often very important. The second aspect is the people that I share the journey with. I enjoy being along and just talking along the trail as the conversation flows. And then thirdly, and maybe most importantly, are the lessons that I learn along the journey. Lessons about myself, about my limitations, which seem to be the most dominant lessons that uh, I experience increasingly so in my life. Uh, but also lessons about other people. Just lessons about situations, about life. Lessons about God. And the ability to spend some time with him and his creation. Often these 
aspects that mark the trip of the journey return to me and, and encourage me. They, they lighten my heart with gratitude. They fill me with laughter and with love and with joy. You know, journeys are so enriching for life, but even more than only enriching, they become defining for us in many ways. Even opportunities for us to mature in life. Well, today I want us to begin a journey of pursuing God. And I want to spend the next few months tracing a people in pursuit of God. And I want us to see the great work and the story of God's redemption among his people in the record of Ezra. If you have ever attended our navigation series, our covenant membership seminars here at LifePoint, if you haven't, you're invited. We'll have one coming up the last weekend of the month. Would love for you to come and learn more about us at that time. But one of the ways in the first session that we introduce who we are as a church is we talk about our theological perspective. Our theological perspective. In other words, how is it that we understand or perceive or view God? And we have three aspects to it. One is God is truth. We do not hold that truth is shifting as the sands along the seashore, but we believe that God is truth, that his truth is absolute, countering the culture of today. And, and that's the first way that we know God because he's revealed himself in truth, as truth. Secondly, we talk about God as mystery. What do we mean by mystery? Well, duty not, uh, duty nine. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the things that belong to the Lord remain a mystery, but the things that he has given to us are ours to pursue. What is he telling us? It, it basically says this, that we don't own the box that God lives in. We can understand and comprehend him as he has revealed himself to us, but we don't fully grasp the wholeness of God. Not because he doesn't want us to, but because he is revealing himself in such a way. And the third aspect of our theological perspective we talk about is not only truth, not only mystery, but story. Story. That God is the one who is working and moving in this world, calling people to himself by faith through the gospel of Jesus Christ to come into a relationship and through their lives to declare and proclaim his glory across the whole face of the earth as the prophet Habakkuk says that the glory of God would cover the face of the earth as the waters cover the sea. And that's why you and I exist, friends. We, upon the date of our physical birth, and then subsequently upon the date of our new birth in Christ, we come into a story that God has always been writing because he is the author of life. And he is working that story today, the same story he's been working from all eternity. It is his very Heart. This is our pursuit. And so in this series, we're going to see that we're not searching for something that we don't know, but rather we're following the one where he leads us to see more of who he is and more of what he is about and more of what he has for us. And I want to make clear from the beginning that pursuit begins with us hearing and heeding the word of God. 
responding to the word of God in faith in order to trust and to follow him in our daily lives. And that means that our lives might be lived for his glory here on the earth, that we might serve as a faithful witness to him in the name of Jesus Christ through whom he's revealed himself and by the power of the Holy Spirit that he has sent to inhabit us as his people, calling all people on the earth to faith in God by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so here's where I begin today to help us understand that God sends forth his word to lead his people in pursuing him for his glory as he accomplishes his will on the earth. This is the story that we are brought into. And so let's look at the revelation of his will by the proclamation of his Word. Move with me to Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, and let me read this first verse before we continue. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Let's stop there for just a moment because it gives us much that we need to unpack in this first verse. Ezra and Nehemiah, considered by many to be one record, two men working on the same mission at different portions and in different responsibilities of the mission. But these two books continue what 2 Chronicles left off with. If you look back at 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 23 and 24, you'll find almost identical words with the words that we just read and the opening words of the book of Ezra. Why is that? Because of continuity. He wants us to understand that he's picking up where the second chronicle left off and continuing from there. And the context of history, world history, will help us see how God is working in our day and time by understanding how God was working in world history in that day and time. So let me give you just a bullet point, if you will, because if you're like me, sometimes I can see these things and, and I don't really know where they go. And so if I can understand where they fit in on the spectrum of world history, it helps me understand that's what we're talking about here. In 586 BC, the Babylonians conquered Judah and specifically Jerusalem, the city. And when the Babylonians, in their foreign policy, when they conquered a city or a people, their strategy was to take many of those people, the most influential of those people, and to disperse them throughout their kingdom, not allowing many of them to stay together because their whole ideology was, if they're not together, they can't be united. If they can't unite, they cannot rise up and oppose us. So we're a safer kingdom in that way. And so in any place you went in the Babylonian kingdom, you've got a, a, a diversity of, of ethnicity, of nationality, and of different kinds of people. Well, in this day and time, the prophet Jeremiah was prophesying, and he was in Jerusalem, in, in Judea. And he was not important enough to be taken, and so he remained in Palestine during this time, 586 B.C. 
When you move about 50 years later to 539 BC, we see that Babylonia has begun to fracture and, and is coming apart as a kingdom. Their empire is beginning to crumble, but there is a young Persian king by the name of Cyrus who is rising in his prominence and defeating many and becoming strong. Persia is what we would consider modern-day Iran. And as Cyrus gains in strength, he attacks and overcomes the Babylonians and conquers them. Now, the Persians had a completely opposite strategy of foreign relations. They would allow the people in their nations to stay and to continue life, and their oppression came through taxation. We'll just keep you so poor, you can't do anything by charging you so much. And so the Persian strategy allowed people to remain. Not only to remain, but those who'd been dispersed by, by the Babylonians, we'll see, could now return to their native homelands, even though many of them were two to three generations removed now. This is how they wanted to build peace with the places they had conquered. So when Ezra 1.1 begins that the Cyrus, uh, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the mouth of the Lord from Jeremiah might be fulfilled, that Cyrus made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing on his cylinder becomes critical for us. That's in the year 539. Well, it began, a movement of Jews began to return to Jerusalem so that they might rebuild. They could rebuild the city walls, they would rebuild the altar of worship, and then ultimately the temple around the altar. But within 10 years, by 529 B.C., Cyrus had been killed in war, and his son, Cambyses, arose to the throne. Cambyses was not as adept at his father. And he, after about seven years, they say, mysteriously died in 522. I bet the mystery is not as much of a mystery, but uh, when, his, when his death came, it caught the kingdom by surprise. He had not made pre preparations, and, and the Persian kingdom went into disarray, disarray for several years, and many of the warring factions, so many of the governors that ruled in all the outlying areas of the kingdom that had their own little armies that were protecting the area, once Cambyses died, some of them began to grow in power and to threaten the Persian kingdom. But there was a very adept and competent general named Darius, and in this time, he had served under Cambyses, but after Cambyses died, in this three-year interlude, if you will, he was fighting the wars for the Persian kingdom, and ultimately, he would win out. He would rise to power and take over the kingdom. Now, Darius proved to not only be very competent as a war general, but also very competent as a political administrator. And once he secured the Persian kingdom from all its exterior threats, then he he came home and began to rebuild the kingdom from within, instituting the laws that gave peace and stability to people, instituting taxation that would support uh, the one kingdom. And so he brought stability. It's during this time, if you look at the prophets of Haggai and Zechariah, that these two men of God were prophesying to the people of God. So you kind of put those two in context as well. And we could even and likely will refer to their prophecies throughout our study. 
So Darius rose in 519, and he served as king of the kingdom until 486. You can see even there how long his rule came. When he died in 486, his son Xerxes took over and arose to the throne. But even like Cambyses to his father Cyrus, Xerxes was not as adept a ruler as his father Darius. And again, the kingdom began to fracture and to split apart. Uh, About 19 years later, 465, uh, Artaxerxes, Xerxes' son, then came to the throne and he ruled till 424. And it was during Artaxerxes' rule from 465 to 424 that Ezra and Nehemiah are moving from where they had been exiled in Babylon, returning and leading people leading the Jewish people, many of them, not all of them, back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, rebuild the, uh, the altar, and to rebuild the temple around the altar. You see, context is critical for us because if we're going to understand the message, we have to understand the times that the message was given to and to understand the people that it was given to. So often, I think today, we read the Bible in a vacuum. We read the Bible in the few moments that we give to it in a day's time and we believe that what takes place, even though it transpired over decades or even centuries in the scriptures, we want it to transpire in moments and minutes in our own reading. And what happens when we read the Bible in this way is it feeds a sinful propensity for us to define God in our image and put our demands upon him, and to lose sight of his hand that is working out his will in human history, we bring God into our life to make him what we need him to be, instead of submitting and surrendering our life to him to use us for his good will and pleasure. And so historical context is critical for us. There's so much for us to glean from Ezra. Because these are God's people living in the the midst of very familiar times to us. They lived in the midst of great political unrest, warring factions, and kingdoms being overthrown and their lives being uprooted because of that. They lived in the time of great economic hardship. As a matter of fact, what many say is that the people from the time of Darius to Xerxes and then from Xerxes to Artaxerxes, the reason the kingdom began to fracture under Xerxes and then ultimately fell apart under Artaxerxes was because of the heavy burden upon the people of taxation. It just crushed them. Because their lascivious living became so expensive, they had to raise the taxes in such a way that it became crushing upon them. And so we see that, that's the context for what we're looking at. But there was also great civil division. Society was not stable. There were many competing voices that were telling the people how to live, what to do, when to do. So what do you do when all of these things are pressing upon you? Well, four generations later, we see God is leading his people into his work. That's where we pick up the book of Ezra. Causes me to stop and ask for just a moment. If you will look at our lives, not just into them, but if you look at our lives as a church even, you ask this, what are we doing to ensure that not just this generation, but the next generation takes the gospel of Jesus Christ and the baton with which they have been handed 
and carries the leadership of the local church, carries the hope of the world and the gospel of Jesus Christ to the next generation that will follow them. If you do much study and reading through the history books of the, of the Old Testament, here's what you'll learn. That there was a generation that followed God. But later into that generation, they would cease to give the same priority to God. And it would tell us that this generation would neglect God. And the generation that neglected God taught the next generation that God was not as of a greater value. And that generation learned because God was not of as great a value. They could not have anything to do or believe or didn't have to worry about him. And this generation who didn't worry about God raised another generation who didn't even know God. Now, I think I just made that into four or five generations. That was very gracious and generous of me to do that. It's typically probably two at most. It causes me to stop and say, what are we as a people doing? Not just for our children, but for our grandchildren and those that we may never see and our great-grandchildren that come after that to have a faithful witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, I'll tell you, We're giving our life in the leadership of this church to help in every way that we can. But we cannot entrust to the next generation what has been entrusted to you as parents, as grandparents. And only you can pass into your children and your grandchildren what God has given to you to entrust to them that those that come after them might receive it as well. That's why we are here today. Because others before us held faithful and handed to us what we've been entrusted with. This isn't just an Old Testament concept. Paul actually says, I've been entrusted with the gospel. I'm entrusting it to you. Entrust it to faithful men who will teach and train others to do the same. Why? Because the generations that are coming desperately depend upon our faithfulness. You know, I also used to think... The times in which I'm living are probably the hardest times I'll ever experience in my life. I can remember just a couple of months after COVID and the pandemic broke out in March of 2020, I was sitting in the living room with my father and talking to him about pastoral ministry. And and his words to me were, I'm thankful that I'm retired. He, at the age of 80, was about six months, maybe nine months out of active ministry. And he said, because these have got to be the most trying, hard times. Good luck. (laughs) No, he didn't say good luck. But I did tell him, thanks, Dad. Appreciate that. (laughs) You're glad you're out. I'm right. I mean, I hadn't even hit midlife yet. My plan is to live to 120. I'm going to hit my midlife crisis about 58 and come out of it around 65. I figure ignorance is bliss. I see so many enjoying it. Why can't I have a little piece of it? I think my idealism of really in consideration of thinking that now are the hardest days of my life, I think that's probably pretty naive. I'm not a pessimist. I used to think I was an optimist. I like to call myself a realist. I think probably I just need to focus on being a faithfulist. I no longer believe that these are the hardest days that I'll experience in my life. 
And there's a theological conviction as to why I don't. Because what God is teaching us today are the lessons that will form the foundation of what he will call us to by faith in the days to come. So we can be afraid of them. And we can be fearful of them. And we can run away from them. And we can hide. And we can isolate. Or we can set our focus on the one who's called us to himself. And we can walk fully into tomorrow confident that the one who is Lord of tomorrow is the one that was Lord of yesterday and he's the one that's on the throne today. It's not going to make him anxious. It's not going to scare him. It's not going to surprise him. It's not in any way going to threaten him. He will be as Lord tomorrow and every day that he waits to return and come again. He will be as much Lord then as he's ever and always forevermore shall be. We need not fear. We need only look and listen to him and follow by faith. And so what does Ezra say? Well, he says this, that the times in which he was living are the times that God had already spoken of. Oh, you mean God's already said something about the days in which we're living? Yes. He says in the prophet Jeremiah that, that what Cyrus did, a secular king from a kingdom that did not recognize God as God, but made allowance for the people to live as they wanted. God had already spoken about this king in the words of Jeremiah. So turn to the prophet Jeremiah chapter 29, if you will. His prophecy is now being fulfilled. And Jeremiah writes roughly in 550 B.C. So if you'll remember the timeline, we're talking about 465 to 424. It was 550 B.C. that the words in Jeremiah were penned. And 30 years after the exile, roughly 12 years before Cyrus would ascend to the throne, God was already speaking his redemptive plan. Now, when we come to Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14, it really is just the heart of the message of the whole chapter. I'm only going to read the few verses that we focus on for today. But these verses are so critical to our understanding of God as story and the redemptive plan of God and his hand working in the world such that they are equal to understanding Romans 8, 28 to 30 in the New Testament. For we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. But they're often misconstrued as equal with Philippians 4, 13. Misapplied, if you will. That's what happens when we make God in our own image, pulling the text out of context and not trying to understand what he was saying within the times. Here's what he said 30 years before the ruler he would use to bring it about would come. Verse 10, For thus saith the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. 
I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. You know, there's a lot of people that were thinking, God has forgotten us. And what Jeremiah says is, no, he hasn't forgotten you. He knows exactly where he put you. And he's been keeping you there to fulfill his purpose and his plan. You see, friends, pursuing God begins by the proclamation of God's word. And that's where our journey begins. Following the generation with every consideration of what it means to pursue God. Throughout our study, we're going to address the critical, or address issues such as the critical role of God's word and the proclamation of it. We're going to look at the kind of people that follow God. We're going to look at the priority of worship for those people and the, the inevitable and the unrelenting opposition that continues to arise against those people. We're going to see God's authority and God's hand and power at work. And we're going to come to understand the role of prayer the role of repentance, the role of spiritual preparation, and the role of obedience for our life because we see it in the life of God's people in the Israelites in Ezra. But today I want us to look at this message Jeremiah sent forth and learn six lessons of pursuing God that we are going to learn throughout our study. And my my, my, question, My argument for us today is this, that these lessons not only compel us, but they motivate us to pursue God. And so I'm asking, pleading with you to join us in this pursuit because of the lessons that we learn from Jeremiah. First of all, we see lesson one in verse 10. And the lesson is this, when you pursue God, you experience his faithfulness and learn to trust him. When you pursue God, You experience God's faithfulness. There's the lesson. And you learn to trust Him. God is faithful. And He fulfills His promises. We see this all throughout the Scripture. We're reminded on every page. And what Ezra does in the beginning of his record is he shows the faithfulness of God by connecting it with the prophecy of God where God's promise comes from some 30 years before Cyrus was even there and any many more years before that. But God's promise is so much richer and deeper than only Jeremiah's prophecy. For 200 years before Cyrus came to power, before Cyrus was even alive, the prophet Isaiah called him by name to identify the person that God would use to bring his people back. Isaiah chapter 44 records this, calls Cyrus by name and identifies him as the one God would use to help his people pursue him. And all of that, was to fulfill God's earlier promise to hear and to save his people from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 29. Friends, don't ever think that you've been lost in the sight of God. Don't ever think God doesn't have his eyes on you. And what God sees, he cares and he pursues. Friends, I want you to see in this first lesson that pursuing God reveals to us his thread of faithfulness. 
his thread of faithfulness. And what is his thread of faithfulness? But this, it is the promise of his word. It is the peace of his presence. It is the power of his hand. And it is the glory of his purpose for your life. My invitation to you to join us in pursuing God is to learn, first and foremost, the thread of his faithfulness for you as you surrender your life to him to live by faith in him. You see, experiencing God's faithfulness is how we learn to trust him. And as we begin to trust God and walk with him, it changes the way we hope in God. It changes the way we think about him. It changes the way we obey him. You see, experiencing God's character, because that's who we come to know, becomes our conviction that establishes our belief. We, we learn about God, but our knowledge about God translates into our understanding of God. So our knowledge doesn't remain only about in facts, but it becomes relationship with God. And you see, learning to trust God changes the way you understand his work in your life and also his work for your life. Faith is the essence of relationship with God. Hebrews tells us, without faith, it is impossible to please God. It's the very essence of the Christian life. And so we must learn to trust God in our life, in the daily steps of our life. The Proverbs tells us that a man makes his plans, but it is God who orders his steps. So we learn to trust God in the daily steps of life. But in learning to trust God in life, we also learn to trust him for our life. You see, you learn to live to pursue God by faith is not simply a matter of giving in. It is a matter of intentional pursuit and trust. Okay, God, I think you're going to win this one anyway, so I'll let you have it. That's not the Christian life. That's not trusting him as going, can't do anything about it anyway. No, the Christian life is, Lord, my feet have hit the floor today. Today is yours. What you have for me is what I want for me. And whatever I've got on the table, you use what you will and you dispose of the rest. But don't let any moment, don't let any word, don't let any inclination or adoration of the heart, don't let any impulse of the synapsis of the gray matter be anything other than praise and faith and obedience to you. Don't waste any of this for all of you. That becomes the conviction that establishes our belief. God leads us, friends. And what we will learn is these were hard times for the Jewish people. But God is not diminished. He is not weakened by hard times. He is not found insufficient. God leads us in hard times to reveal his continued faithfulness. And his greater power to trust him more. If I've learned anything over the last couple of years in all of this, it's been the value of godly friends and being surrounded by them so that even when they say things off the cuff, it becomes a deep well of encouragement from which God allows me to drink. In life and in faith, I've watched friends, some close some from days gone by. I've watched colleagues flake out, walk away, and drift away. And I know you have too. 
And some of it I just want to go, God, I just don't want to see it anymore. It just feels like so much to carry. But you can't miss it anymore because what started as individual movement has now become cultural cliché. We've made it a thing that we can materialize and market in the Christian world. You pay the right amount, we'll show you how it's done. So you can't miss it. And I've had to ask God in all of these things, Lord, grant me grace to discern who it is that I should watch, who it is that I should listen to. Do not let the voices that are not faithful to you continue to influence me. And I'll be honest with you, some of the most influential voices of my life over the last 20 years, I don't have much for anymore because I don't like the trajectory of their life that I'm seeing. I don't know where they're going to end up, but it doesn't matter. What matters is where am I going to end up and the steps that I choose to take today by faith is what's going to turn the direction of my life. God, guard my heart, guard my mind, guard my life. But I'm going to tell you this, the dark cloud of grief that has set in across the world in the last two years for those who are looking to Christ brings a crystal clarity. He will not be shrouded unless we choose to look away from him. Nothing is as valuable as the lessons that God teaches you in trusting him my question is are you looking to him are you listening so that you can learn and heed his word life is changing friends but God is not this is the way the world works this is the way God works you'll never really know what you have in God and so often I've heard this finished in this way until God is all you have there's an element of that that I like but that's not the whole of it that's true because when you say God is all I have I can hold to him and actually that's only a very insufficient partial truth because as we're learning in today's world so many just simply are choosing not to hold to God anymore but what if it said this you'll never really know what you have in God until God has your whole life when there's less self in you and more Christ in you, you'll really begin to just see the beginning of the true treasure that God is for you. Pursuing God brings moments that test us and threaten us. And each one as an experience of his great faithfulness to trust him more. Lesson number two. I'm going to have to move through these quickly, so stay with me. Lesson two, you can trust God's plan and purpose even though you may not understand his path to fulfill it. Verse 11, you can trust God's plan and purpose even though you may not understand his path to fulfill it. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. What God doesn't say is I know the plans you have for you. And that's typically how we start our prayer life. God, I need to tell you about some things I'm gonna need you to pull off today. They're too far down my priority and task list for me to worry with them. But I'm going to need you to come through. God says, I know the plans I have for you. And they are plans for welfare and not for evil. That word welfare is not used here in the text the way that it is used so commonly in our world today. Just barely getting by but in deep need. 
insufficiently provided for. No, God's welfare is abundant provision with overflowing blessing. That's what it means here. Not for evil, but to give you a future and a hope. So let me begin this lesson with this question. Is it enough for God to know his plan for you? Or do you demand he show it to you before you commit to pursue him? God, I need you to lay it all on the table because I'm, I'm going to pick and choose a little bit here. I'm going to rearrange the priorities and see what it is. Let me ask you this. This might be a little more appropriately applied for us. Would you say that your life is a series of unplanned, circumstantial, random happenstances stringed together by your decisions? Very few, I think, today would actually admit that. I mean, we live in a day with a plethora of people ready to coach us in what we need to know and what we need to do and how we need to go about doing it. So we probably would say, no, I wouldn't say that. But before you answer in some way that says, no, I'm intentional. Every day is strategically approached, man. I'm, I'm going to go after, let's go, let's get this, blah, 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 blah. And all the other little slap the door frames as you leave the house kind of cliches. Or the gym, if you choose to go there. Here's what I'm asking. I'm asking, where is God in your daily life? Is he watching over you in your perspective as you walk your own way? Or is he the one leading you? Is, is God the one lording over your life? Just makes us a little uncomfortable to say it that way, doesn't it? You see, essential to Christian discipleship, according to Luke chapter 9, verse 23, when Jesus says, if any man would come after me, he must deny himself. Death, death to self is the first critical path step way, pathway step to following Jesus. You see, which when you die to self, it's not only in each situation or decision, it is death to self in the big vision and purpose for your life as well. And the way God wants to use you. You see, trusting God's plan is not about a simple matter of because it works. Well, God, I'm going to go your way. It seems like that's the best option. seems like that's what's going to be the best for me. No, it's because he purposes your life by his will. Listen to me, friends. Everything that God commands of you, many of the things that God leads you in, are not going to make sense in your perspective in this world. Because they are not driven by the glories of this world. They're not going to bring the immediate return of this world because you're not living for this world. And just because things don't make sense in your worldly perspective doesn't mean they can't work in the world. Everything in eternity works in this world. Nothing of this world works for eternity. Don't get the order wrong. Or will you surrender to be led by the presence of the Holy Spirit to live the eternal life that God has given to you here and now? You see, one major point of die to self begins with our death, death to self-centeredness. Why do I say this? Verse 11 of Jeremiah, what does he say? I know the plans I have for you. You is plural, not singular. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to his 
people, not just each individual person. Listen to me, Christian. God's plan includes you and it is for you, but be very careful you're not deceived to solely think that it is only about you or even that it begins with you. God's plan for redemption and his glory begins with him. And if you make you all about you, you miss the point. Your life is to be lived inextricably joined in community and fellowship with other Christians, not just to get your social calendar right, but to bring the glory of God's redemption in the person of Jesus Christ as a faithful testimony to a world that is desperately dying to hear about him. And I would argue you'll never fully understand God's plan for your life outside of that community and fellowship as well. See, God designed his will to be made known among his people. All Christians need the local church much more than most even know or admit. Even today, someone came up to me and said, Pastor, how can I pray for you this week? I don't know. That's the last question I've thought about today. All I've thought about this morning is what I'm going to do and what's got to get done before y'all show up and, and, and what has to happen because you're here and, and what needs to happen after you're gone and, and how we get ready to start Monday morning doing it all over again. I haven't taken time long enough to answer a question that is so deep and complex and confounding of my mind. I have no idea what I need you to pray for today. You probably should start there. Lord, make him aware that whether he shows up today or not, this whole thing can still carry on. Pursuing God is not simply what we do in life, but for our whole life for his glory. Lesson number three, verse 12. When you pursue God, you respond to what he initiates. It doesn't begin with us. Verse 12, when you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will hear you. Why? Because he's the one that sent his word forth in invitation for you to respond in pursuit. God's pursuit of us enables us to pursue him. That's why verse 12 begins with the word what? Then. It happens after what has already initiated. God's word proclaimed today is his invitation for each of you to respond in faith. The question remains, will you? Will you? Lesson four from verses 13 and 14. When we pursue God, he brings us to a place to meet him. Verse 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Why? Because seeking and finding is not about something that is hidden or lost, but it is about the one who is waiting and calling. You see that? you got to change your understanding of God He got here before you did today. And where he's calling you, he's already waiting on you to respond and to come. One great challenge to spiritual growth in our life is this. Is to believe that what you want to know about God and that you want to know God is not as great as God's desire to know you and to be with you. You see, we think, man, I want God so much. I just feel like sometimes he doesn't want enough of me or want me at all. That couldn't be less than true, friends. What God is saying here in these verses is quite the opposite of that. Every moment of every day, God is calling to you. He's longing for you. He created you for himself. 
Pursuing God begins with the gospel of Jesus Christ, this glorious good news that He has made a way for us to hear, to believe, and by faith to come to Him. While we were yet sinners, Christ died on the cross for us. God's always been working to draw you to Himself. Will you pursue Him today? Not along with everything else, but with your whole heart, for your whole life. Lesson five, finding God is the prize of pursuing God. Finding God is the prize of pursuing God. Now, let me just help you understand that word finding, I say it in the same spirit of the word in verse 13, you will seek me and find me, not as again finding something that's hidden, lost, or removed. No, friends. Finding God is the prize of pursuing God. God is our great reward. When you pursue God with all your heart, you enjoy the abundance of His blessing. And it's not His presence, the things that He gives to us, that is our reward of Him. But it is His presence with us. You see, friends, when God created you, Genesis says you were formed in the image of God. And until God fulfills that image in you, you will desperately seek with every ounce of your being to fill the void that his absence creates. That's what salvation is. God coming and inhabiting us, consuming us to bring his glory that he intended in creating us to us. Pursuing God with all your heart means you abandon every other affection and all else that competes with him to find this, that he alone is worthy. He is worthy. And lesson six, the end of verse 14, no matter where you are, where you've been, You're never beyond where God can reach to bring you back. I would say this is the simplest and the shortest lesson, but the most hopeful. Because some of you have this deep-seated suspicion. God can't love you. God won't love you. God hasn't loved you. And all of those are wrong. They're false. Because what God is saying that you are not too far I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile yes friends yes he's speaking directly to the Jewish people and his discipline upon them that sent them into exile but friends by the gospel of Jesus Christ what we know is that his will is that people from every tribe and tongue and nation would gather at his throne and worship and I'm telling you If you are under the voice of God's word proclaimed today and you hear it with your ears, if you will heed it with your heart and you will believe in him, even as as Abraham did hope against hope, if you will just simply surrender and go, none of me, all of you, God will answer that prayer for you today more gloriously than you have ever dared conceive. God sends forth his word to lead his people in pursuing him for his glory as he accomplishes his will on the earth.